Parevces, and welcome to Talking Vartan, the Knights and Daughters of Vartan podcast. I'm Ospid David Medzorian from Otterdot Lodge No. 1 here in Boston. Thanks for joining me for our 15th podcast episode. I hope you and your loved ones are doing well this spring, that you're all healthy and happy, and that you're following the instructions of your local health officials and state government with regard to the COVID-19 virus. Of course, be cautious, be safe, but also make the time to unwind, to relax, and maybe even enjoy some good music. Well, my guest today knows all about making people happy with good music, for he's been making great music with his oud and a host of other instruments for, wait for it, 74 years. And it's been a family affair. If you have not seen Richard Hagopian in person, that's pretty hard to believe. You've no doubt heard his music on record, remember them, on CD, on the radio, or perhaps you're like me in this digital age and his music is on your mobile device, purchased of course, and you listen to it when you're running or when you're home working out. The music of Richard Hagopian and his band just plain makes you feel good, and that's why we've been dancing to it all of our lives. And it also honors our Armenian heritage and our community here in the United States in a way that nothing else can. Mr. Hagopian is, of course, a performer and recording artist, but he is also a teacher of music and a goodwill ambassador, bringing his brand of Armenian music to audiences of all ages. Richard Hagopian has also had his share of well-deserved honors, including, in 1989, the National Heritage Fellowship, awarded by the National Endowment for the Arts. It's the nation's highest honor in the field of folk and traditional arts. Richard Hagopian also holds the title of Udi, a title given to him by the legendary Armenian artist who just happened to be blind, Udi Harant Kenkulian of Istanbul. Mr. Hagopian is one of the few people in the world who holds that title. And he's also one of us, a former commander or spotabed of Yeprad Lodge No. 9 in Fresno, and a former Grand Vice Commander or Nachkin Avakter Sparabed. Many of us last saw Richard Hagopian in Las Vegas when he and his band performed at our Grand Convocation in 2019. Today, he's at his home on his farm in Selma, California, about 20 miles southeast of Fresno. Welcome to our program. Now, you asked me to call you Richard, and so I shall. You've been performing for longer than many of us have been alive. What do you do to keep it fresh and fun after all these years? Well, you know, you, music is an ongoing tradition, and you listen to all types of music that's coming out. It, it changes. It gets modern. I try to uh, play the traditional music that our grandparents and parents brought from the old country, from their cities or villages. And we do try to put some new stuff in there that comes either from Armenia or the Middle East. It, it's always a, uh, a learning process. You have to keep your mind open and, uh, and see what you can do with it. But some of the songs that you have been performing, I think it's very safe to say you have performed literally thousands of times and yet when I hear them, and I know that when your audiences hear them, they sound as fresh as if they were, you know, being heard and or recorded for the very first time. Do you try to make changes in the music or in the, in the arrangements? Or is it just, I know what people like to hear and I want to do that for them? We add different instruments sometimes to modernize it a little bit, to give it a modern sound instead of the, the old ethnic, you know, for instance, they used to use the zurna. In place of the zurna, we use the clarinet. They never had a, a, a guitar or a string bass or a bass. Uh, we've added that to give more bottom, to keep it a little more modern and fresh. Tell me how it all began with you musically. And now I think it's safe to say that music has been a part of your family since before you were even born. But you have been around music ever since childhood, and you began learning to play various instruments at a pretty young age. Who were the big influences in your life? And, and did, it, did it start with family members? First of all, let me say that uh, my father was a survivor of the genocide. Mm -hmm. But he loved music. He was a good dancer, had a good voice, he sang. Uh, my mother is uh, first generation, born here, and she played piano, and she liked music. Her side of the family 
being from Marash, they were restricted from speaking Armenian, so they were Turkish-speaking. My father's side was from Erzurum, and they spoke they spoke Armenian, they spoke Turkish, and they spoke Kurdish, because that area they had to deal with those th- predominantly those three type of people. Mm-hmm. So, in our home, it's not like now. We used to have the uh, when I was just a little kid. We had a crank phonograph. Of course. And when people came over, and there was a lot of visiting there, because you have to remember that there is no television, there's hardly anything, and people would come, and they'd after a little bit, they'd open that phonograph, they'd start playing records, they'd sing with it, they'd get up and dance with it. And I heard that all along. My father and mother both wanted me to take violin lessons or to be a violinist. So at an early age, I start taking violin lessons. In middle school, I also took up the clarinet. I could, of course, play the uh, Armenian drums, the dumbag or the darbuka, they call it, too. And who taught you how to uh, do that, the dumbag? I just I just learned on my own. You were self-taught. Wow. I used to, yeah, I used to listen to the records and listen to the drum in there, and uh, I knew pretty good the rhythms, so I would... Uh, play it. Even my sister had learned. Would you try to copy what you were listening to, or would you try to improvise and come up with a, a different arrangement on your own to the same piece well, of music? You, you remember when you play the drum, you have to keep the, the strict rhythm. Of course. You can do some improvising in it, add some fancy things, but usually that kind of thing interferes with the music. The drum is a strong rhythm part of our music. It can't play too loud. It can't play too fast. It can't play too slow. It, it keeps that rhythm steady. So uh, one day, my father was he used to buy records from the Armenian record store. He played a record, and I heard uh, the oud. I used to hear the oud on other records, but I didn't pay much attention. But this was an a toxim, an improvisation. Mm-hmm. And... And, and it caught my attention right away. I don't know how to explain it. It just entered my body like. And it was Udi Hirant. How old were you? I was uh, at that time probably around uh, eight or nine. So what happened after play. you heard it? You heard it and, and it just had this real, it was like a, a cataclysmic effect on you. Yes. And I, ke- I kept playing that record. And then I kept telling my father, try to get more of if this Huron records. And, and uh, every once in a while, he'd find some and he'd bring them. So it wasn't too much long after that. I, I said, uh, I want to I wanna play the oud. I, I want an oud. Well, uh, you know, in those days, it's not like now where you open the computer and within a week you can have anything you want or a few days. Exactly. How uh, how difficult were ouds to come by at that time? They, they were difficult. You had to know someone in the old country. You had to write a letter. The letter had to get there. That person had to find someone that knew someone. But luckily, there was two people involved. There was a, a gentleman that was from the same city as my father from the old country, and he lived in the same town. And he used to come and visit once in a while. And one day when he came, my father said, uh, Harry, kiddes, merdan oud. Oh, he says, I used to play the oud, and I don't play it anymore, and I have one. Oh he says, I'll go bring it. So he went home, and he, he brought his oud. He brought the oud, showed me how to string it, how to tune it. Well, it wasn't too hard because uh, it's very similar, the fingering to violin. If you've studied the violin, most oud players can play the violin, vice versa. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because it's unfretted. The oud is an unfretted instrument. It's not like a guitar. It's unfretted like a violin. I was going to say, what would you, so, to you what in your opinion is the, or what technically is the greatest difference between playing an oud and playing a guitar? The thing is, our modes, or makams they call them, modes, have quarter tones in them. And you can play that on the violin, and you can play it on unfretted instruments. You can't play it on a fretted instrument. I see. Okay. You see? Mm-hmm. And it, it's like a note between the white and the black key that's not there on the piano. That's uh, right. You're, that's li- you're limited. You're very limited yeah. in that respect, so, whereas with the oud, you're not. Please go ahead. 
Yes. So I start playing on that uh, instrument, and my uncle, by marriage, my uh, mother's sister's husband, they lived in Los Angeles, and one of one of his brothers also played oud. So when they came to see me and and uh, heard I was playing, he also had a couple of oud, so he brought a oud down and and uh, let me use it. So that's how I was able to get the oud, and, and I used to listen intensely to uh, records. In fact, I tuned my oud to the records, uh, and I'd play with the records. Really? To teach myself. Huh. That's how I taught myself to play. Now, when I spoke to you last night, you said something to me that I just, I, I mean, obviously I believe you. I just thought it was absolutely astounding. You started to play the oud, you said, uh, in 1946, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. In 1946, you also played that oud in front of a live audience for the first time? I mean, it was that yes. soon? Tell, many, do you remember times. the first That's, time? you remember your first yeah. concert? Go it, ahead. It wasn't, too, it wasn't too much longer, but I used to play also clarinet on programs. But the thing was, I was a kid, and people were sort of surprised that a, a small child could play an ethnic instrument and play their music. I'm going to say that I probably wasn't very good at the time. And sometimes my mother would accompany me on the piano. We had learned songs together. And 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 sometimes my sister would even play the drum. She's five years younger than me. My goodness. So it so really this, was a family affair in that respect. But you didn't see it as a chore, practicing and, and playing. That was not a chore to you as it unfortunately is to some music students. Like, oh, do I have to practice again? I know that's how it was for me when I was, I took the violin for about a year and it was the worst year of my entire life, but it, it wasn't a chore for you, was it? You, you loved it. I couldn't it. wait to get home from school. And the first thing I would do is pick up that oud and play. In fact, sometimes I do it so much. My father would yell and say, stop, Henrique, that's, <laughs> that's enough. <laughs> you know, do your schoolwork or something. But what happened is also along with, listening to her aunt and that style because the older oud players had a, a a very basic style her aunt had a very flowing up and down picking technique that was very smooth and very pleasing so that's that's what i was trying to pick up but there was another person that we had records of and that was my teach my real teacher he was an internationally famous and had escaped the genocide and come to America in the early 20s and recorded from the 20s all the way into the 50s. And that was Kanuni Garbis Bakurjian. Mm -hmm. And he had a good voice and he had a lot of records and I used to listen to them and, and copy that. So it just so happened that uh, about 1949, they had a big doing in Fresno, and they had invited him to come and play. So uh, uh, I told my dad, we've got to go to this. Uh, I, I need to see this person. And he was a good friend of my uncle in L.A. that had loaned that oud to me. So we went to the doing, and they were playing, and they took a break. During the break, I went up to him, and I, and I, I poked him, and, and I said, uh, this is my name. And... Uh, I understand you're a good friend of my uncle in Los Angeles, and that caught his attention. And he says, well, what do you want? Well, I says, I play the oud, and I says, I've copied all your songs, and uh, I says, uh, I'd like for you to hear me. And he sort of laughed, you know. Here was an international artist talking to a small kid, mm -hmm. and they had an oud player there, an old-time oud player. So he said... Uh, where's your father? I said, well, he's here. He says, go get your father. So I brought my father and introduced him, and they talked a little bit. And then uh, they went back on stage. They played a couple of numbers, and then pretty soon uh, he got the microphone, and he said, a little while ago, he said, a little kid came and talked to me about a nude playing. He says, I forgot his name, but he says, I want that uh, kid to come up on stage right now. So I, I start going up on stage, and the old oud player that was with him, he told him uh, in Armenian, oh, he says, 
are we going to fool around with kids now? And uh, he said, never mind. He said, give that oud to that kid. He says, I want to hear. He, t- he said he could play the oud. How were you feeling at that moment? Were you nervous, a nervous wreck going up there? Or were yeah. you confident well, I that... Was, mm-hmm. I'll tell you, my stomach was like tied in knots. But, <laughs> but I, I couldn't say anything. And uh, my dad was surprised. My mother didn't even know what was happening. So I went up there and he, he told me in a low voice, he says, uh, what song do you want to play? I says, well, I'd like to play this song. I said, the one that I've learned from your record. So he says, okay. So we start playing. We played one more song. He says, thank you very much. He says, uh, you did well. He says, thank you. Go down. So I went down. And it ended, and he found my dad, and, and uh, he said, uh, we're going to go back in a couple of days, but can we come and visit you tomorrow? And my father said, yeah, sure. So the next day, uh, they came over, and uh, he told my father, he says, you know, he says, this boy is very talented. He plays exactly the right place, but he doesn't have a foundation. He doesn't know what he's doing. He plays right, but he doesn't know why he plays right. He says, is it okay if I take him as my student? And my father said, yeah, there, there's, no, there's no problem, you know. And you must have been thrilled. I was thrilled, but then my grandfather came into the situation, my mother's father, and he had escaped the 1908 massacres. Right. They came to get him. They had hung his friend, and he killed several Turks, and then they were after him. He fled to Egypt. So he told my dad, he said, you know, he says, musicians aren't good people. They don't have a good reputation. He says, you shouldn't be sending your kid to uh, uh, to take lessons like that. that. That's not... I'm I'm opposed to it. So he sort of, you know, put the kibosh on it. Meanwhile, my uncle, when this garbage fellow had gone back, had spoken to my uncle and told him that he wanted to take me as a student, and everybody was surprised because he never had a student before. You were his first. I was his and only. Really? Until the time he died, I was the only student that he had. So anyway, my uncle called my dad. He had heard that there, I wasn't going to go. And he told him, he says, you know, he says, this person is a very honorable person. He says, uh, we associate with them. Him and his wife come over. He's not uh, one of the run-of-the-mill uh, saloon uh, musicians. He says, this man has played uh, before in the palace in Istanbul. He says, he's not just he says, you better, while you have the opportunity, you shouldn't. So I used to take the train. They used to put me on the train in Fresno, and I'd go to L.A., and my uncle would pick me up, and we continued having lessons like that until 1950 when Udi Heran came. And at this time, 1950, I must have been 12, 13 years old. Mm-hmm. So we went to the concert, and uh, he had two beautiful ludes on the top of a grand piano before the concert started. And, and I saw the, and I told my dad, oh, what a beautiful oud, what beautiful ludes those are. And uh, the fellow that gave me the first oud, you know, my father's friend, Uncle Harry was sitting by, he says, talk us, he says, don't worry, he says, we'll, we'll do something. He says, let's see. So the concert went on, and uh, they took a break, halftime, my father, my grandfather, and Uncle Harry, they went backstage, and they, they took me to, they said, come on. So they talked to Udi Haran, and they said, uh, that Ud you're playing, can we buy it? Well, he said, uh, I'm playing the concert with it. When I'm through with the concert, he says, yes, I'll sell it to you. So they bought it. They bought that Ud, and that's the Ud that I've recorded on, and that's the Ud that uh, I still have. One of the greatest makers, that's uh, Oni Karibian Ud. Mm-hmm. He, he's dead. He's gone, you know. So... I kept taking lessons, and then Udi Heran started coming back, and he remembered he had sold that out, so we start playing. Uh, sometimes he would appear in a nightclub or something, and he'd ask me to play. Uh, I would play oud, he would play violin, he would play oud, I would play kanun. And uh, so I start studying with him a little bit. And we corresponded when he went back to Istanbul, and it was ongoing until he passed away in the 70s. And my teacher was ongoing until he died. He moved to Fresno from Los Angeles. And uh, 
his last few years was he was constantly with us with our family and that's all we did you know when he's over we would play music and stuff and he would always correct this and that you should do this you should do that and 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 that's that's basically how i learned however it's an ongoing thing to try to you're you're never the best you always have to strive to be better oh you're so right about that I've been a cameraman and a photographer for for decades now, and I, I still want to learn. You know that you can never know yeah. enough. You're, that's what you just that's said. Right. In other words, applies to to just about everybody. Tell me, anyone little- who says I know it all in any field and I don't need to learn, he's a failure. I don't care how old you are. If you're playing that instrument, there's always room to learn something new, something different. Absolutely, and to make it better. Because you're limiting yourself to do otherwise. Right. So, and don't ever think that you're the best, because there's someone out there definitely that's better than you. We're talking with Richard Hagopian, a legendary musician, oud player, and he plays a lot of other instruments, too. He's talking to us tonight uh, from his home in uh, Selma, California, which is uh, not too far from Fresno. For those of you who have been to any of our recent Grand Convocations, uh, you've seen him. Most recently, he performed for us both uh, at the Kef Night and then also during the Grand Banquet when he and his son performed some some beautiful Armenian tunes. That's something I actually wanted to ask you about. Um, when you are playing a song, it's one thing to be able to play the notes and to, you know, to get the tune down and all of that. But, for example, if you're playing a song that either conveys great happiness, it's a celebratory song, or to go to the other extreme is something that is very melancholy. How is it that you are able to, through the instrument, convey the emotion of a song? Well, that sort of comes naturally. Uh, It's a feeling that comes within you. And if that feeling is, is right, you can hear it in the instrument. A lot of people, they're very methodical or mechanical. They play very well, but you don't hear that subtleness or the feeling of sadness or happiness. In fact, sometimes if it's something that relates to the genocide or through what my father went through or my family went through, if there's vocals in it, it's so emotional that sometimes I can't sing that song. I can play it, but it's too emotional for me to to sing it. Other times... I may feel a little different, and and I will be able to sing it. But many times, I've had to stop, stop singing. I understand. Because it does get emotional. Of course, of course. You know, it's not just showmanship or to have them say, look look at me, look who I am. It has nothing to do with that. It's, It's in the playing, because I've learned this instrument and this music personally for myself, because I loved it. And then through that love and learning, you share it with the general public. One of the many ways that you have done that, of course, is not only through live performances, but also through recording. And uh, I personally own a number of your albums and uh, one of my favorites. In fact, I'd have to say it is probably my favorite, um, which is uh, Armenian Music Through the Ages, uh, which has a a number of different types of songs. And I think very representative of uh, the diversity in your music. And I'd like to just play a little clip from one of them, and then we'll hear a little bit more later. And uh, the song is called Sidun Akchig. Is there any sort of an introduction you want to give to this, or anything that you can tell us about this particular song? Sidun Akchig was composed by Udi Hirant. When he came, he explained that being in Turkey, he has several compositions that to this day are used in Turkey or, or, or played and sung but they're all in Turkish. He said, you have to excuse me because that's my environment and that's the musicians that I work with. So most of my music is in Turkish, but he says, I've composed a few Armenian songs and he has maybe 10 of them that he's composed. Some of them on his life, some of them about his wife, Sirunachik probably is one of them, you know, that he's referring to his wife. Let's listen Uh, to just a little bit of Sirunachik.
Now, Richard, I've been dancing to that song my entire life, and you have just <laughs> you've given me a much greater appreciation for it, and I think that's wonderful. Tell me if you agree with me. Do, to understand the meaning of a song, of why it was written, or under the circumstances that it was written, and all of that can give you a better appreciation for it, just like, for example, knowing about a great work of art, you know, a painting or a sculpture or something. When, when you right. learn more about it, you can appreciate it more. Don't you agree? I do, yes. Most people don't know about the music. They enjoy it. But where are they going to know the history of it? Because they don't, uh, you know, they don't know the artist personally. They don't, uh, they haven't studied music, but they enjoy playing. I mean, they enjoy listening and dancing to it. And that's also very important to musicians. If you have a good audience that's enjoying that music and, and they're responding by dancing and having a good time, it generally, and most of the time, makes the music sound better and the musicians play much better. Oh, I would think so. I would they think play so. much better because they know that their fans are enjoying it. And so while they're enjoying that, the musicians are enjoying the fans doing their thing. Because without people dancing or listening, uh, it's just music. No, you're right. Talk about, and I'm going to, if I butcher the pronunciation of this, I will beg your forgiveness and please correct me. Hikaz Taksim. Hijaz Taksim is a makam. It's a mode. Hijaz. And it's an improvisation, and that's how they measure how good a Middle Eastern or Near Eastern musician is. When you play that, when and a taksim, you never play it the same way because you compose it as you're playing. But it has a form. You start in the low part, then you go to the middle, then you work your way up to the highlight of it and then you have to work your way back down and you you can incorporate a couple of other modes in it but you always have to end where you started and if it's not proper other musicians will judge you and say well you know he might have good technique but he doesn't know anything about music because he played that improvisation wrong well you i think you played it pretty darn right and let's listen to just a little of class toxin could listen to that all day that is ju- and as you said that's really it would be very difficult to play that exactly the same way twice but uh right. i guess you, again- you never play it the same way twice now the misconception about this music i can understand why the people sometimes don't tolerate because all of the while i was growing up all of the music being played and played by and danced by and listened to were the people that had escaped the genocide. And most of the time, they sang and danced to Turkish music. Most most of the compositions in Turkey were either written by Armenians, Jews, or Greeks. There's also Turkish composers. But because of the genocide and of the feeling of what's happened to them, politically, some people find that music, they, they say, we don't like it, or it's not ours. It, it's, uh, 
if you take the diaspora records that were made here by uh, Armenian musicians from from the 20s, early, even on Colombia in the uh, 1915, 16, around that time, 90% were Armenian musicians and singers, and they recorded in Turkish. And some of them, they rewrote the lyrics. Literally, they they knew Turkish, so they made the Armenian words from the Turkish word. They, they changed it to Armenian words. They never composed the music. They, they used the same music, but they sang it in Armenian. And it was accepted by the Armenian audience as a result, is that Well, right? they would accept it. But at that time, uh, they accepted all the music. Uh, it was not like now. The, uh, the people now that are protesting are not the people who survived the genocide. It's their grandchildren or great-grandchildren. Or great-grandchildren, yeah. And, and, and they don't understand that these people lived in the village, and that was a part of their culture. Now, I know people who say that when there was no genocide, on certain days when there was Turkish holidays or Armenian holidays, they would all dance together. Turks, Armenians, and Kurds, they would dance together. So some of these dances that they're dancing, that uh, we say they're Armenian, they probably are, you know. But they lived in the same village. They were neighbors. They were friendly. There was an ongoing genocide all the time. And just because there was a genocide doesn't mean that all the Turks were in favor of the genocide. The government was bad. They threatened even their own people that if they hid Armenians or tried to save them, they would also do the same thing to them. Very true. So, you know, so I'm uh, what I'm saying to you, uh, I'm not protecting what happened uh, because just on my father's side, we lost 14 people and one was hung. So if anybody says that Richard is making excuses or for Turkish music or something, they're very wrong. They don't understand the concept of it. Most Armenians, directly or indirectly, are affected by the genocide. Of course. Now, when you have been playing to audiences around the United States, and, and I personally know you from the many, many years of Kef times that you were hosting and participating in, whether they be in uh, Hartford, uh, Connecticut, here in New England, or in Cape Cod, or, and of course, I know you played in uh, Detroit and in California and other areas as well. How did the Kef times begin? How did that all get started? I was very fortunate growing up that in our area, there were multiple Armenians from different areas. Some were, some were Vanetsi, some were Mushetsi, some were Harpetsi, some were Erzrumsi. They were from all over. And we had musicians that came from the old country that were playing the music that they brought from those villages. So I had a great opportunity to sit in with them and at age... 13, I was accepted into one of the local groups that was one of the, the most popular group. So I had firsthand learned from those musicians exactly the music that they were dancing to. And each area had a different dance. The Mushetsis had their dance, the Vanetsis had their dance, the Harpertsis did their dance. So it was a, a living experience. However, in 1965... Buddy Sarkisian from Lowell, Massachusetts. Yes, I remember him well. And his brother, Mike, of course. Mike was known as Mr. Uh, Near East. They made a lot of recordings. Buddy had brought a group to Las Vegas, the Cleopatra's group at the uh, Flamingo Hotel. Mm-hmm. He had brought uh, a violinist there that uh, was very well known, Freddie Elias. And uh, he had brought an Arabic oud player. And somehow... During that time, that oud player got into trouble and had to leave. So uh, Buddy had heard of me, and he came to visit me and asked me if I would be interested in joining the group in Las Vegas at the Flamingo Hotel. Well, I had two children, and my wife was pregnant with the third. And I I said, uh, you know, Buddy, I don't want to leave my family and and, uh, go to Las Vegas. Well, he said, you know, I've got an eight-week contract. So my wife, uh, you know, she said, hey, you know, the money is good, and it's good exposure. Why don't you uh, 
take the job for eight weeks. It's only eight weeks. That's only two months. I said, well, okay. So I decided to go and uh, I joined Buddy's group. It was his, uh, his group. And we had uh, myself, Buddy Sarkisian on the drums, and Manny Petro, who's uh, passed since, yes. and Buddy has passed too, on the guitar. And I was doubling on Oud and Kanon and vocals. My youngest son was born, and immediately, even though we were, I was going to only be there two months, I brought my wife and family, I moved them, I, I uh, rented a nice place, and I moved them into Las Vegas. Well, that eight-week contract went for two years straight without oh a break. We, we broke a record. No other group in Las Vegas had played two years straight without a break. My goodness. So we ended up living there two years. And then when the job finished, I moved back home. But Buddy had the idea. Uh, we start getting calls to play these uh, calf times. We went to Providence. Russell Gasparian had the Armenian radio hour. He was one of the first ones. I remember that. He, he invited us uh, to go. So Buddy came up with the idea. He said, we need to record. So he says, let's record. And we'll wherever we go, we'll, we'll call it. Kef Time what? So so we started with Kef Time Las Vegas, which was recorded in Las Vegas. Then we did a big thing in Fresno. So we did, we actually recorded Kef Time Las Vegas and Kef Time Fresno in Las Vegas. And that was after we were through. We had to fly Hachik back out. We had to fly Jack back from Los Angeles, which was not far. And I had to go back in. So we did those two. Meanwhile, Hachig was having Kef, he started having Kef times in Detroit. So we did a, a Kef time Detroit. And uh, that one was somehow we were doing a job in Fresno, so we recorded that one in Fresno. Then Hartford came in, and Hartford, we did uh, maybe 35 years straight. That's where because, I saw you first time, was in Hartford. Yeah, because uh, we, they had a big 25th anniversary. And Hartford was really over a thousand people come in. Mm -hmm. uh, so we did Kef Time, we recorded Kef Time Hartford. And then uh, the Hart people also, they uh, recorded uh, videos. On that 25th anniversary, there there are videos that went up uh, commercially for sale. How wonderful is and with, that? With, that shows the musicians playing, the people dancing. It's really a nice thing. I don't even know if uh, it's even available anymore. It's been a lot of years. So that's how the Kef time started. Then the Cape started. Then we went to Toronto. Uh, so for a long see, time, you in, spent a lot of time in an airplane, didn't you? I mean, just going oh, from, my goodness. A lot of, uh, I had a lot of miles. Uh, Russell Gasparian and uh, New England, I must have gone 10 times in one year. Oh, I don't doubt it. Uh, in 2002, uh, we were contacted by the government. They were trying to open the uh, border between Armenia and Turkey. Right. And uh, they contacted me. They said, Mr. Hagopian, you know, you're very fluent in Armenian and in Turkish. And we want you musically to give, we want you to do two concerts, one in Istanbul and one in Yerevan, and see if, this might not soften the issue a little bit, and we can open the uh, border between the two. I said, no. I said, I I'm not willing to do it. So they contacted my son in New York. They contacted Harold. Mm -hmm. They said, look, uh, we're talking to your father. He's the ideal person we need. We need him. And both governments have signed, the Turkish government and the Armenian government. They're both on the sponsoring thing. They, they want it. So my son called me, Dad, why aren't we doing this thing? I said, Zakas, you don't understand. Our people are not going to understand that we're doing this to try to help Armenia. I'm going to take heat for this because I'm going to Turkey. He said, no. He said, you know, he said, there's three governments involved. And, and it's for the benefit, just as much for the benefit of our people as they talk so much, they finally convinced me. So we did it. At the time, Archbishop Patriarch Mutafian was alive. Yes. And uh, he had co-sponsored, he had signed. 
So when we arrived in Turkey, and the agreement was half of the musicians were going to be Turkish, half were going to be Armenian, but we were going to play only compositions of Armenian composers, whether it be Armenian or Turkish. No Turkish composers. And everybody agreed. Well, the day before I left, there were big headlines in some of the political newspapers already putting me down. He's a tool of the Turks. He's going there. He's been duped. All kinds of stuff. Which you anticipated. Which I anticipated. That's why I didn't want to do it. Right. At any rate, we got to to Turkey. And uh, on the second day, they were interviewing us, all the major newspapers, and I went on television and, and everything. And uh, that night, I had to see the, the patriarch. So we went, and he accepted us. Wonderful person. Could speak many languages. Very intelligent. And uh, spoke English very well. We spoke. I said, Badiar, you know, I said, they're interviewing me. I said, I'm here. I said, I don't want to hurt our people in Istanbul. I says, what don't you want me to say? He says, Richard, we already checked up on you before you came. We know your background. We know your politics and everything. We're not afraid of you. But, he said, whatever you do, do not use the G word. He said, it won't affect you because you're an American citizen. You'll do your concert and leave, and we'll take the brunt of it. Don't use the genocide word, he says. Right. So I said, okay. And then he was at the concert. There was all kinds of ambassadors from all countries and everything. And the following day, as you'll have it, I got to meet her aunt Dink, who had just come back a day before from America. So he said, Richard, he said, have you read? I don't want to name any papers and, and pol- uh, politics here. Have you read that uh, political paper, what they've written about you? I said, yes. I said, I got, I got it before I left. He said, are you going to answer them? I said, no, I'm not going to answer them. He said, do you know why they're here? Uh, do they know why you're here? I says, they never even bothered to call. And I said, I had friends there that were on the editorial staff. They could have called. I said, they didn't even give me that courtesy. He said, well, he says, if you're not going to answer them, I'm going to answer in my paper. I said, Baron Harant, I said, you know, you're just opening up trouble. I said, you, he said, Richard, my dear Richard, he says, I'm not afraid of the Turks. Am I going to be afraid of them? I said, well, do what you want. Well, you know what happened to him. Of course, he was murdered. And we did the concert at Roberts College, jam-packed with Armenians, Turks. We did... Turkish music, Armenian music, and that same group, we flew to Yerevan. We did the same program. In fact, uh, it was Palm Sunday in Turkey, and we got invited to the Samatya Armenian Church where the patriarch was officiating. And they had special places set up for us to sit in the church. They had a banquet later. Many Armenians who had come in from the interior were living in and around the patriarchate, they couldn't speak one word of Armenian. They knew they were Armenian. They had brought their families. They they wanted their kids to be enrolled in Armenian schools and to become Armenians again. And they only spoke Turkish, but they were jam-packed in the church. They were all waving olive uh, branches and stuff. It was Palm Sunday. And then we went the following week, and we were in Yerevan with the same group. Again, the the place was jam-packed. The same people that had written about me in the newspapers in America, they had written to their people, and they had some young kids, 12, 13 years old, standing before the concert outside protesting. And the Armenian government took them away. They said, this is not the place for that. And it was very successful concert-wise and music-wise. In fact, they don't play the oud in Armenia like we play. After the concert in Armenia, the oud professor, she was a lady, she came up backstage and she said, Mr. Hargopian in Armenia, can I speak with you? I said, yes. Would you be willing to teach some of our, we have oud players, but we use them like just guitar, chords and stuff. We've never seen melodic and picking techniques like you're doing. 
I said, well, I'm not staying. I said, I'm leaving. But I said, if there's some students that want to meet with me tomorrow, I said, that, that'll be fine. I, I can explain to them. They took pictures of my oud and the, everything. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, all we did, the border did not open. It's not open till today. But I don't see that I made a mistake because in my heart, I feel that I did the right thing for our people. Because if, if it had opened, Armenia would be in a better position. It would help them more. Of course. And it's all right. I took the heat, and I'll take the heat. Uh, that, that's part of, I guess, no matter what you do in life, sometime, somewhere, you're going to take some heat. Oh, that okay. is so true. That is so it, very true. But it's true. okay if it's for the right reason. Mm-hmm. Nope, you're absolutely right. Listen, I would not be doing my job as a proper asped if I did not ask you about uh, your service to the Knights of Vartan. Tell me what it is about the mission and the meaning of the Knights of Vartan that prompted you to become a member in the first place and then later to assume a, well, a number of positions of leadership. To be truthful, the only two organizations as I was growing up that I really belonged to was the Armenian Apostolic Church and the ACYO. My teacher had told me, if you're going to be a musician and you're going to be an entertainer, try to keep away from political organizations, membership. It's not good because it'll come back to haunt you. So those were the two things that I was very involved with. But after I got married, my brother-in-law was uh, going to be Sparabet. Uh, he, we were married to sisters. It was my wife's sister's husband. Mm-hmm. And he passed away a few years ago. His name was Nachkin uh, Sparabet, Sam Farsakian. Several people came to, while I was in business, they'd say, you know, uh, don't you think you would like to join the Knights of Artan? I'd say, you know, I really don't want to join any organization. I belong to the church. And, and that's that's enough. Uh, they said, well, you know, and finally, my brother-in-law came one day. He said, hey, enough is enough. I'm going to be spot bed next year, and I want you to be a member. I said, Sam, I keep away from things because the, I don't want to be polite. He says, well, let me tell you something. He says, this organization is non-denominational and non-political. And he says, all we do is work for our people in a subtle way. In those days, they wouldn't say the Knights of Artan did this or that. Like now, you know, we're in the newspapers. There's no secret. Right. So I, I said, uh, well, I said, if it's non-political and non-denominational and it's only for Armenians, I said, I think maybe I'll consider it. So I joined. I joined and uh, I really liked it. I knew a lot of people in there through my music that, uh, you know, I, di- I didn't know who the membership was. I I could honestly tell you that almost 100% of the members I knew through music, uh, through, you know, playing for events, picnics, and different things. And And you were no stranger to them, of course. No. And uh, so before I knew it, I was put into the line, and within two years, I was spot abed. Two years? Within two years. My goodness. I became spot abed. And this was Yeprad Lodge number nine in Fresno. Yeprad Lodge number nine, mm-hmm. which which was the biggest lodge uh, in all of the uh, Brotherhood. Right now, it, it's a toss-up, I think, between Boston and uh, Yeprad. I, I don't know who has the most members. but I'm that, so glad you said make... Boston. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but that doesn't make any difference. The, I know, the, I know. The, the thing is, it's a fraternal order. Uh, and then I had a... My friend who was in there before me, Nachkin Avak Der Sparabet, Bob Der Matoyan, I've known him for 60 years. I mean, we were friends. We had lot of, we did a lot of things together. And he told me, he says, uh, I want you to be my Ter Sparabet. I said, I'm not ready. I'm in business. I said, I can't travel. I can't do anything. So he says, well, I'm going to wait. He says, when you retire, he says, I'm putting you on. So that's what happened. I retired in 2005, and, and immediately he says, hey, I'm putting a, a, a Tivan together, and you're going to be my Nachkin Ter Sparabet. I said, well, okay. So how much time so, was there between the time that you were Sparabet of Yeprad Talij and the time that you became the 
Oh, I was Svarabed in 1982. Okay, so we're oh, more than 20 years later then you be, you, yeah. you joined the Yavak Tivan. Okay. Yeah, because I, I was busy with, with my business and my farm. And then my family was growing up. I, I really couldn't travel at that because already I was taking too much time traveling for music. Richard, talk about uh, your family. You, you've got a musical family and, and many of your uh, family members have joined you on stage over the years. Uh, tell us who they are and, and what they play. We have three sons. Uh, my oldest son, 10 years ago, passed away. He was also, he's also a Nachkin Sparabed of Yeprad Lodge. My condolences. Uh, he, he was in my band. I had a couple of bands, but then all of my sons are musical. So I told my friends in the band, I said, you know, I don't know how long I'm going to live, but I have the opportunity to work with my three sons. And I want to do that. And they, they all understood. That had so, to be one of the great joys of your life. It, it is. And so my oldest son, Kay, was on the drums. My middle son, Harold, was, while he was here, he was on the violin and canon. My youngest son, Armen, who's also a uh, Ashbed at Yeprad Lodge, and, and his son, my grandson, last year joined also. So that's three generations in the hospice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he played clarinet, and they all can play oud. And uh, Armin's, uh, my youngest uh, son's children, uh, Philip and Andrew, I was able to uh, get a, a grant from the Arts of California, California Arts, where master student. So I taught Philip the oud, and I taught his brother, younger brother, Andrew, the kanun, and then I also taught him the oud. Now, if you put those boys behind a curtain and they played for you, you wouldn't know the difference if it was me or them. But they learned from you, though. So I... They learned from me, right. but they've, they've, uh, they've really done a fantastic job. So now, not only uh, my, my whole family plays now, my grandsons, we're, we're, uh, when we play for events, they're all and all with me. And I, I've been doing a lot of uh, uh, educational things for Fresno State University. Right. And they and uh, they do it with me. When was and your last they, live performance? I know that obviously we've all been uh, indoors for the last few months because of the COVID nineteen situation. But when was the last time you performed on stage before an, a live it was, audience? Uh, it was in April, early part of April. And I think that it's on, uh, it was through Fresno State, and uh, the professor, the Kurdish professor, excuse me, came from Berlin, Yektan Turkilmaz, who is a Kurd, but speaks perfect Armenian and reads and writes it. And he's a collector of uh, diaspora Armenian records. He's very interested in it. And uh, we did a live program, which you might be able to... Uh, to find and see on uh, the computer through the auspice. Through Fresno State University Armenian Studies program. Okay, well, you heard that, folks. Uh, if you Fresno State University Armenian Studies program, see if you can find that. Google it, and uh, we were scheduled to do one on April the thirtieth, and the school closed. Right. So they asked us to do it from home, and we did a fifty-minute program for them. That was combined with the Middle Eastern and the Armenian Studies program, and that's also available. But we recorded it with my uh, uh, grandkids and, and my son, and we did that uh, for them, and they've got it available. You can also open that. How wonderful. that, that That's terrific that you were able to do that. Did you have a very full schedule of performances, or was it, uh, I know, obviously... We had a, yeah, we had a couple of weddings that... Uh, are not happening. Uh, we have we uh, the St. Gregory Armenian Church of Fowler uh, has the Father's Day picnic, which is a big picnic. It's been canceled. The two great blessing picnics uh, that we play for one week apart. One is the uh, Prelacy Church and one is the uh, Di- Diocese Church. Right. Uh, those have been canceled. All all events have been canceled. So we're actually on hold. 
We're doing nothing. You and the rest of us, sir. <laughs> but now, luckily, and by God's will, we're all fine. We're not. We're not ill yet. Oh, I'm so thankful. And I'm so thankful so that that's the case. We're thankful for that. I'm so thankful that's the case. And before I let you go, you, you, there is something you told me yesterday, which I think perhaps some of our members, our knights and daughters, do not know, and that is uh, a, a, a certain leader of a certain Armenian fraternal organization called the Knights of Vartan is uh, also a fellow Oud player. Is that correct? Yes. I have to tell you that Avax Parabet Steve Adams was in my class at Fresno State many years ago, and he can play the oud. He won't deny it, but he <laughs> he's bashful, and, and he's, he's, he's good at it. He's good, and I'm proud of him. And he also served on the Avak Tivan with me. And let me say that Yeprat Lodge three years ago also made me man of the year of the lodge, I told them that I wouldn't accept it and they wouldn't take no for an answer. I told them, I said, you know, I know that there's more older and qualified people better than me that should be. And they, they said, no, you've kept the tradition and all this. And so I, they also honored me by <laughs> Man of the Year Award. An honor well-deserved, Mr. Hagopian. I can say that uh, unequivocally. Richard Hagopian, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk with you and uh, to uh, share some of the experiences of an incredible life that you have had. And thank you for your time. And I hope that uh, you and your loved ones there in uh, Fresno, in the Fresno area of California, you being in Selma, can uh, get through all of this along with the rest of us and that uh, we will have another chance very soon to hear you play that incredible Ud in person once again. It has been our pleasure. Thank you very much to all my Osved brothers. Uh, I wish them well, and by God's will, we will have our convocation next year, and we'll all be well. And thank you, David, very much for uh, this interview. It has been my pleasure. My thanks to Richard Hagopian for spending some time with us today, and we hope that before too long, we'll be seeing him and his band performing live again, with the rest of us on the dance floor, enjoying every note. We do need to update you with regard to this September's planned Veratats Haidenik trip to Armenia. It has been cancelled for this year due to the COVID-19 situation. Avak Spadabed Stephen Adams and the committee planning the visit made that decision just a matter of days ago, but they are planning to resume what had become an annual trip for the Knights and Daughters of Vartan next year, in September of 2021. And we'll have much more on that in the months ahead. And of course, this year's Grand Convocation in July has also been cancelled. This year's destination of Glendale, California, however, will be next year's, and the dates are July 13th through the 18th 2021. There's more information about next year's Grand Convocation at the Knights and Daughters of Vartan website at kofv.org. The website is one of several great resources that Knights and Daughters can turn to to find out what's happening at our lodges and otyugs across the country, as well as our many projects in Armenia. Another great resource is our Knights and Daughters of Vartan Facebook page. Always worth checking out for the latest Knights and Daughters news and also for photographs submitted by you, our brothers and sisters across the country, as well as in Armenia. And let's not forget the Avaride, our quarterly digital and print publication full of informative and entertaining articles and photos. And you can always submit material for use on our online and print resources. You can send them directly to our dedicated communications liaison in Armenia, Kohar Palyan. She can be reached via email at knightsofvartan at gmail.com. Speaking of communicating, I'd love to hear from all of you on what you think about the Talking Vartan podcast. And if you have an idea for a future podcast episode, whether it be a profile of a certain lodge and otyag, or a person or persons in either the Knights or Daughters of Vartan that you feel deserves some recognition, please let me know. You can reach me via email at talkingvartanpodcast at gmail.com. Again, talkingvartanpodcast at gmail.com or directly 
through a link at the Talking Vartan Facebook page. You can listen to and download all of our Talking Vartan podcasts. They're available through the Talking Vartan and Knights and Daughters of Vartan Facebook pages, as well as SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Talking Vartan, the Knights and Daughters of Vartan podcast, is the exclusive property of the Knights and Daughters of Vartan and Osped David Medzorian. Any public use of this without the expressed written permission of both parties is prohibited. It was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said, everybody can be great because everybody can serve. Thank you for your service to the Knights and Daughters of Vartan. I'm Osped David Medzorian of Aradat Lodge No. 1 in Boston. Till next time... Shunodagalem, Sireli Parigamnet.